This is a great idea. Thanks, Dad. Do you think thirty-five thousand will be enough to get you started? Dad, I, I don't want a loan. It's not a loan, son. It's a gift. I believe in you, son. I love you. I love you too. I'll pay you back. I promise. I just need like. 3500 bucks to get me through the next couple months. You know I'm good for it. Let's go to our Bibles, James chapter 4. We're going to talk about something that every family has in common. It doesn't matter if you're Hispanic, if you're African-American, if you're Caucasian, if you're Irish, if you're Italian. It doesn't matter. Every family has this one thing in common. Every family fights. Amen. Which one are you? Which one are you? Because every family fighter takes on a certain persona. Do we have any peacemakers in the house? Peacemakers, you're the people who are just like, is everybody okay? Like after the dishes have been thrown and the couch has been kicked over, you come in and you put it all back together and you're the peacemaker. We love you peacemakers. We need you peacemakers. All right, we, we thank you. But, but to be honest with you, some of you peacemakers, you, you get walked on, you get stepped on. And sometimes you're not a peacemaker, you're a peacekeeper. And there's a big difference between being a peacemaker and a peacekeeper. Sometimes you've got to make peace through conflict. And so watch that. Watch out for peacemakers. Maybe one of you here, some of you here are the suppressors. Are you a suppressor? One of the, people ask you, are you all right? I'm fine. I'm fine. Are you sure you're right? Yes, I'm good. It's like men, husbands, you know that whenever she says, I'm fine, the translation is, all hell is about to break loose. <laughs> right? We know that. It's suppression. It's not honesty. And it's not helpful to the family. So some of you suppressors, you got to come out a little bit. And then some of you are litigators. You're litigators. You could be world-class defense attorneys if you tried. And you, nobody in the family wants to argue with you. And the reason why is because you win every single argument. And you're not even right most of the time, but you're just that good. Remember, like, forget it. I don't have a chance against him. He's always going to win the argument. Maybe some of you, you're the screamer. Any screamers in the house? Screamers have no problem letting you know <laughs> that you're, they're a screamer. And it's like, maybe if you're one of those other three people, right, and you married a screamer, and you had that first fight, and they came out with that, that thing, that screaming thing, and you were just like... <gasps> devil come out right you never never imagine out of that sweet little thing or or that cool cool good-looking guy that some voice of demonic oppression could come out and then of course when you have kids they're all screamers but then you figure that out as you go which one are you? We're all in the midst of this conflict uh, in many ways many of us experience conflict I found this joke it was a great joke about an elderly couple had lived together in a nursing home for many years, and though they had been married for 60 years, they had never stopped 
fighting. Their relationship was strained with constant arguments and disagreements and shouting contests. And the fights carried right into the nursing home years of their lives. The, the couple argued and squabbled from the time they got up in the morning until they fell asleep in bed at night. And the nursing home supervisor was so fed up with this couple that they threatened to throw, that she threatened to throw them out if they didn't get their act together. Even then, the couple couldn't agree on what to do. How were they going to stop fighting? Because they couldn't do it. They couldn't stop fighting. Finally, the wife said to her husband, I'll tell you what, Joe. Let's pray that one of us dies, and after the funeral, I'll go live with my sister. <laughs> you have to think about that one for a moment. Uh, anyway, we all have fights in common. We all do this. Every family fights. I said last week that the first family had the first fight. Two brothers duked it out, and it was a fight to the death. It was the original death match. Cain brought Abel into the field and killed him, and then God comes, and he curses Cain. And we're going to have to deal with fights because we are sinful people, and there's no avoiding it. If you're not experiencing some semblance of conflict in your family or in your marriage, um, I say this in love, but there's a good chance that one of you is not being honest or one of you is dead. Because conflict is inevitable. Every family has conflict. And so today we're going to talk about the cause. The cause. This is the great thing. While every family has conflict in common, every conflict has the same cause. And what we often think is that the cause is something other than what the Bible tells us that it actually is. And James James is going to show us what the cause of our conflict in every family fight. You can apply this to church fights, too, because there ain't no fight like a church fight, man. I'll tell you, church fights take fighting to a whole nother level. But, but there, every fight has one thing in common, and James is going to tell us what it is. So James chapter 4, who, who is James? James is the brother of Jesus. Uh, Mary and Joseph had Jesus miraculously. She was conceived of the Holy Spirit. And then he was born. Then, he had several, then they had several children afterwards, brothers and sisters, according to the scriptures. And in Matthew, Mark 2, it tells us about his brothers. In John 7, it tells us about his brothers. And in John 7, I shared this last week, that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him at first. They did not believe in Jesus at first. And that includes James. And then James came around. In fact, all their brothers and sisters all his brothers and sisters came around, and they all started to believe that Jesus was actually the Son of God. You know what made them change their minds? Jesus rose from the dead. All right? I don't care, you know, how bad you think your brother is. I don't know how much you might disagree with him, but when your brother rises from the dead, he's more than your brother. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? And James becomes the, the actually, James becomes the pastor of the church in Jerusalem in the book of Acts. And so he becomes like one of the stalwarts of the Christian movement in the first century. So James is going to tell us, where do these fights come from? You can look on your notes with me. You can look at your Bibles or your smartphones with me, or you can look on the screen. James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. Everybody say, within you. 
Is it not that your passions are at war within you? If you're taking notes, point number one, fighting in my family happens because my passions are the problem. My passions, my inward passions. Notice that James did not say, isn't it your passions among you? No. He says it's your passions going to war within you. The problem is not the external realities of my life. The problem is the internal condition of my heart. Your passions within you are at war. The problem is not out there. The problem is not them first. The problem is not your income. The problem is not where you live. The problem at its heart, at its root, is that there are passions at war within you. Verse 2, he says this, you desire and you do not have. In other words, you want stuff, you don't get it. You, so he says this, so you murder. And, and by the way, Jesus, just so you know, you say, uh, I never committed murder. Jesus said getting angry at your brother is the same thing as murder because the heart gets angry at them first, and then the body murders them. Now, we all probably have not murdered anybody. Praise God. Thank you. Amen. And keep that streak alive. But we've all gotten, we've all gotten murderously angry probably at people and especially the people in our family. So he says you murder. And then he says you covet and you cannot obtain. So you do what? You fight and you quarrel. Here's what we do in our families. We see a situation in our home that is not right, that's not according to our desires. And so we kind of just let someone have it. Or we go, we want to be like that family down the street, and we are a little bit angry about that, and we suppress it for a little while, and it eventually just comes out. Why can't you be more like? Why can't you kids do more like? You know, and we just kind of like compare ourselves with other people, and, and what are we doing? We're, we're desiring, and we're coveting, and we're looking at others, and it's creating within us this stirring up of our passions, and they are at war within us. The word that James uses here as, uh, for, the, for the word passions, and, and he's going to use this a, sec, a, third, a second time in verse 3, is the Greek word hedone. Hedone. I don't really bring up Greek words that often, but this one is important. Because the word is, is, is the Greek word hedone, and from that Greek word, we get the word hedonism from it. He says it's your hedonism. That your hedonism is at war within your body. Now, what is hedonism? If you look that up in Webster's Dictionary, hedonism is described as the pursuit of pleasure. The pursuit of pleasure. Here's what hedonism is. You don't have to be some guy who frequents uh, questionable establishments to be a hedonist. All you have to be is somebody who's chasing pleasure. Chasing happiness, looking to be loved by somebody, looking to be up, uplifted by somebody. Maybe you're looking to have pleasure by getting that bigger house or pleasure by getting that bigger family or that, that, that those children, getting those children, and you're chasing and chasing and chasing these things that you believe are going to bring you lasting 
pleasure. And there's a serious problem with chasing pleasure. Here's the problem. Because some of you do this. And you don't even realize. But as soon as I say this, it's going to make total sense to you. You're chasing pleasure. The big problem with chasing pleasure is this. That you are fickle. You're fickle. You won't. You want one thing on Tuesday, and by Thursday, you want something totally different. This is the second point, if you're taking notes. My pleasures are schizophrenic. (laughs) This is so true. What pleases you today, what you think is going to make you happy right now, I will bet you that in any amount of time, that thing, that person, that relationship will not make you happy anymore. I guarantee it. You're schizophrenic, man. And James says this word is so, it's so amazing. This is why I know that the Bible is Holy Spirit inspired. This isn't just James saying this because this is deep stuff. He says, your pleasures are at war within you. And so you want to do this, and you want to move over here to this house over here, but you also want money. You want to be able to save. You want to put money in the way. Put in the so you're scared to do that because it's going to cost you this, and those two passions are going at each other, and it bubbles up into anger, and it bubbles up into madness, and you get frustrated with who? The people who are closest to you. We all have this. And then somebody in our neighborhood gets the bigger screen TV, and how dare they get the 55-inch? I had the 50. Now mine's a piece of garbage. I got to go out and rush to the store and trample over people to get that 60-inch TV. And, and, then, and then we have buyer's remorse because... Now it's like we own it, we got to care for it, and now there's no happiness. So what what we thought is going to make us happy, and listen, everybody in this room right now, you have something in your life right now. You will put it on a pedestal. You will put it on this this pedestal in your mind. It's way up there. It's like, as soon as I get that thing, I'll finally, finally be happy. And God and His grace, And because you live in America where if you just work hard enough for most stuff, you can get it, you get it, and then it makes you happy for a little while, then it it just kind of dries up. This is what's going on inside of us. My pleasures are schizophrenic. My passions are the problem. By the way, this is why adultery happens. Because you made me happy when we got married. I know I said till death do us part, but... I got to be honest with you, you're not really lighting my flame anymore. So I'm going to go over here and I'm going to try to find somebody else who would do it. Or that classic line that divorcees say, we're just not in love anymore. We just don't feel the same way about each other. Of course you don't. My goodness, didn't you have kids? That changes everything. You know what I'm talking about. Like, you used to be free. And you used to go to the movies on the drop of a hat. You used to go in and out of Boston, in and out of Providence, banging. Wow, it was awesome. It was fun. And then the kids showed up. 
Now you got to take care of them. Of course you're not going to feel the same way about each other anymore. But you've got to listen to me. What you were thinking that relationship was going to be for you inevitably changes because people change, conditions change, circumstances change, the world changes. And if you put all your eggs into that basket bringing you pleasure, you better watch out because someday there's going to be a hole in that basket. All the eggs are going to fall out and you're going to have nothing. That's the reality of our lives, chasing pleasure. This is, this is why, you know, you, you, you think, I got to get married, and then you go and get married, and now you're like, what did I do? <laughs> and you're like, what, who did I marry? Uh, and all those questions come up, and everybody goes through this, and then you're like, maybe we should have kids. And then you have kids, and you're like, bad idea. <laughs> that didn't fix it. Maybe we got to get rid of the kids. And you wait those 25 years or so to get rid of the kids, and then you realize it's just you two again. And you're like, we didn't like each other in the first place. Let's get the kids back in here. This is what's happening in our culture right now. 35-year-old men are living with their parents. And this is the reality of chasing pleasure because your pleasures are schizophrenic. Which brings me to Christmas. This season of the year is built on your schizophrenia. It is. What's the two big items this year? PS4, Xbox One. Ooh. Right? You got to get it. You got to get it. You got Or something. Maybe it's the new iPad, the new iPhone, the new something. And this, this economy, our economy in America is built on coveting, built on it. Tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet. And every advertisement that you watch this season, and every advertisement between the football game timeouts, what's it teaching you? You're not happy until you get what they got. Coveting. Some of you parents, listen to me, listen to me. You are going to spend way too much money on your kids once again for Christmas. And you need to stop it. If, you're, if you got like three kids and you're in the $300, $400 range or above, what are you thinking? That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money to put into kids because here's what I know and here's what you know about your kids. The most schizophrenic people in your house are your kids. <laughs> Amen, somebody. Can I get a witness from some parents in this place? Because you know that you're going to spend too much money on them, and they're going to be like, oh, 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 until 10 a.m. on Christmas Day. Then they're going to be like, I'm tired of that. And before they go back to school, they'll be like thinking about what they want next. Because their pleasures are the most schizophrenic out of all of you in your house. This is a problem. This is a serious problem. Some of you need to budget this Christmas. It needs to be the first Christmas where you don't go overboard. And, and trust me, if you think your kids will hate you, embrace it. Once you get over that little fear, it's wonderful. 
I'm telling you. And if your kids don't hate you at some point in your parenting profession, you are doing it wrong. They should be cussing at you, cursing you, thinking you're the devil, all that kind of stuff, because you need to bring to them a sense of gratitude, a sense of self-control. This is your job, parents. Don't say it's the church's job. We got them for one hour a week. You got them all the rest of the time. You got to instill in them, no, we are not going to do that this year. And, and by the way, if you're planning on going into credit card debt, stop it for Christmas. Just big mistake. Big mistake. Especially New England people. Please, please hear me. Okay. You go into credit card debt this month, then you get the bill next month, and next month is January. Everybody hates January. January, like I said last week, is from the devil. <laughs> and you want to face all this cold, all this darkness, and all this ice with a nice big fat bill for stuff that your kids aren't even happy about anymore? Amen. I think I'm preaching to somebody. If you can't say amen, say ouch. It's just as good. we got to watch this stuff. This is what James is saying. This is the problem. Your passions are at war within you. So everybody do this real quick. Just take your index finger and point out somewhere, anywhere. Just point out anywhere. Just say after me, the problem is not out there. The problem's right in here. i got some passions that need to be countered. James chapter 4, verse 3, the second half of the verse. You do not have, James says, because you do not ask. And then he says this, and some of you, you ask and you don't get, you don't receive because you ask, what's the word? Wrongly. Why? To spend it on your passions. The same Greek word, the same word, hedone. You pray wrong. Point number three, if you're taking notes. Fighting happens when my, because my prayers are unproductive. Fighting happens because my prayers are unproductive. So some of you, you're not praying about what's going on in your life. And you're arguing, you're fussing, and you're fighting, and you haven't even prayed over it. Here's two ways to make your prayers unproductive. Number one, just don't pray. <laughs> That's about as unproductive as prayer can get. Just don't ask God. Just don't even. And some of you, you do this. I hear some people say this. Well, I don't want to bug God. I don't want to bother God. You know, he's busy. He's got the whole solar system thing going on there. I don't want to bother him. It's like, stop. Your father loves you. Your father sent Jesus to die for you. Jesus was sent to the world, his son. God so loved you that he gave his son that if you just believe in him, you're going to have everlasting life. God wants to bless you. And there are, there, Billy Graham said it like this, there are answers to prayer in heaven to prayers that were never asked. And maybe you need to pray about it. Maybe you need to pray for your own heart. And maybe you need to pray for God to give you some things that you need or some things that you want. Not wrong. Jesus actually commanded that we pray. 
He said in Matthew chapter 6, he said, if God so clothes the fields, the lilies of the fields, and the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven. Look what he says. He says, he says look at the grass, look at the lilies, look at the flowers, and they're beautiful, and God has adorned them with beauty. We cut flowers, we bring it into our house. We fertilize our lawns, we cut our lawns, we want to make it look beautiful. It's gorgeous. What is Jesus saying? God did that. God did that for those things that are here today and gone tomorrow. And then he asked this question, how much more will he not clothe you? How much more will he not clothe you? Will he clothe you? And then verse 7 of Matthew 7, he says this, ask, this is Jesus' commandments, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door shall be opened to you. There is nothing wrong with asking God for things. Or Jesus never would have said this. Verse 11 of the same chapter. Same chapter. A little bit later he goes, if you, then, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. And by the way, he's not saying that you're evil. He's saying in comparison to God, you're evil. In comparison to the goodness of God, everybody's evil. He says, if you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much, everybody say the next word, more. It's, it's more. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Take your requests up to God. Some of you are stressed and you're worried and you're anxious, and that's why you fight with your family. And you know what the Bible says in, in Philippians chapter 4? It says, be anxious for nothing. Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and petition, make your requests known to God. And then the peace of God will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. And then God's peace will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. You, you might not get what you pray for, and that's up to God. But your peace will come back. And there's nothing better than having that peace. Then James says there's, a couple, there's another way to be unproductive in prayer. He says you do not ask. I mean you ask and you do not receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, your pleasures. And, and this is the thing. Okay, let's go back to point number three. Your pleasures are schizophrenic. Okay, nobody knows how schizophrenic your passions are and your pleasures are as God does. God knows how schizophrenic you are better than you know how schizophrenic you are. And this is why he says no. <laughs> this is why you will pray and you will pray and you will ask and you will ask and you will beg and you will beg and God will say no. Why? Because God knows you better than you know yourself. And he knows if he gives you that now, your five years from now will be ruined. Or your ten years from now will be ruined. Or your kids will be ruined. Or your brother will be ruined. Or somebody's going to be hurt because God gave in to your schizophrenic pleasures. How many, of, how many of us can look back on our lives and we can look at those prayers that we prayed and say, I am so thankful that God said no back then. I used to pray for this girl in high school. Oh, man, did I pray. 
pray, pray, pray. Oh, God, just help her notice me. Oh, God, just help her love me. God, can't you change your heart? Show her what a fantastic catch I really am. Prayed and prayed and prayed. God said no. About 10 years out of high school, looked her up on Facebook. I said, thank you, Jesus, for all those no's. Oh, you are good. Thank you, Lord. I mean, seriously, there are things that you pray for. There are things that you pray for. Some of you prayed for the house, and you didn't get the house, and then the economy went under, and you would have been up a creek. And some of you prayed for the job, and you didn't get the job, but then the company went under, and you would have been up a creek. And some of you, you prayed for you know, something in your life to come to pass that ultimately God knew it would have made you happy and it wouldn't have lasted and you'd be worse off on the back end. We got to check this out. We got to get this surrender to God. Number, uh, uh, verse four, let's look at this. This is going to get worse before it gets better, so bear with me. Verse 4, you adulterous people. James just knows how to say it sometimes. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Don't you know this? He says, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is some harsh language. Let, let's unpack it for a minute. James shows shares with us two relational terms in this verse. Number one, he calls us, or he calls them, adulterous. Adulterous people. And then the second thing that he calls them are enemies of God. These are relational terms, and they are there for a reason. He's saying when you let your passions dictate the direction of your life, and when you are all about getting and chasing and grabbing and holding and having and all that stuff, you've forgotten something. You've forgotten that you are betrothed to your Father which is in heaven. You are His possession. And if you're in Christ, and I'm talking to the Christians now, I'm talking to the Christians, listen, if you're in Christ, you belong to Jesus. You don't belong to yourself anymore. The day that you came to Christ, the day that God reached out from heaven and plucked you out of this world, you came into a covenantal marital relationship that God said these things about marriage, whatever God has joined together, let no man separate. And marriage in the Bible is a symbol of God's commitment to us. And when we come into relationship with Jesus Christ, with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been brought together to God in peace. We said that last week. In peace, we have now commit, committed relationship, covenantal relationship with our Father. And when we chase stuff, and when we go after things, we've started to commit adultery. When something other than God has become the chief aim and pursuit of my life. I'm a spiritual adulterer. And then he says this, you're an enemy. You're becoming an enemy of God. You're becoming just like the world. And Jesus said it like this. He said, the pagans chase after everything. They chase after what to wear. They chase after money. They chase after wealth. 
It's not to be like that with you because you've got a covenantal relationship with the most glorious, most giving, most generous being in the universe, the creator God, our Father. Here's the thing about adulterers and enemies. They have something in common. Adulterers and enemies both have no peace. And when you're committing adultery or when you're chasing after that arrangement in, in marriage and you know it's wrong, you know, man, your peace gets robbed from you. This is, this is why basically all adulterers eventually confess to somebody because there's just no peace. And enemies, they have no peace either because they're constantly in conflict. When you let your passions bubble up into your life and you don't pray about it and you don't let God give you that peace that he wants to give you in prayer and putting him first, listen, listen, you're going to pay for it in peace. Peace will be taken from you. And the problem is not them and the problem is not your wife, and the problem is not your spouse, or your girlfriend, or your husband, or your, or your uh, children, or your parents, or your brother. The problem is probably that you've allowed something to come between you and God. And that's spiritual adultery. So number four, if you're taking notes, fighting happens because my priorities are misdirected. That God is no longer first in my life. And man, it is so easy to fall into this. It's so easy to go through the motions as a Christian and not realize that your heart has turned away. Slowly. But eventually you've turned, you've, you've grown cold to the Lord and and you've fallen in love with something else. And let's just, let's be honest for a moment. Let's be honest because Jesus was honest with us. This is the one thing that comes between us and God more often than anything else in our lives. Right here. You know, Jesus said that you can't serve God and what? Money. Mammon. The Greek word. You can't serve God and money. Do you know that the only thing that Jesus ever pitted our affections against God with was money? That was the only thing. He didn't say you can't serve God and the devil. Because let's be honest, nobody's really serving the devil. I mean, at least intentionally. There's a few nutcases out there that are doing it, but they're just weird. But most people in America, this thing, this cherished little item has come between them and God. And, and this little item, by the way, is the cause of most family fights. It really is. A national survey in 2009 of marriages across this nation, seven out of ten marriages say the number one conflict in their marriage is this. And you know, what, you know why we have such a hard time with this in marriage? Do you know why? Because for many marriages, this represents power. And there are people in this, in this, in this church right now, and, and one, of you, one of you manages the money. And I'm all for that. Somebody should manage the money because you're good with money, and you should do that, and that's not a bad thing. But what happens is resentment builds up in the one who doesn't manage the money. 
And then that money becomes a symbol. And, and here's the problem. That person who's managing the money could be managing it perfectly. But the person has a problem with that because that management of the money is like a power thing now. The issue is not the money. The issue is what you think about it. This holds all the cards in your house. John Piper said this about money. He said, money stands for what you can get from man instead of God. Money stands for what you can get from man instead of God. And most people in their marriages and most people in their homes and most people in their families, the struggle is over this little bill. And, I, and, and it's so true because look at, it, look at on the back of this bill. There's four little words here, little itty-bitty words. They say, in God we trust. And then the huge words on the top say, the United States of America. In God we trust. This is a perfect illustration of how money stands for what we can get from the United States of America. And this thing doesn't mean anything. It's just a piece of paper, but it just says right here on the front, it says, this note is legal tender for all debts, public and private. And this little, this little dollar bill, right, this little $20 bill, all it represents is a little sliver of gold in some safe somewhere. And as we keep printing money, that sliver just keeps getting smaller and smaller. Amen, somebody. But, but that's all it stands for. You know, Martin Luther, who was like the father of the Reformation, 1500s, father of the Reformation, he said this. Uh, he was talking about the first commandment. The first commandment is thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. And he was talking about this commandment. He said, what is a God? What is a God? We have to define that. And he said this, a God is whatever you depend on when you're stuck. A God is whatever you turn to to say, that is what I need. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever, have you ever said this about your marriage? Have you ever said this about your family? We just need a little bit more money. A little bit more money and we'll get there. A little bit more money we'll be happier. No. Mm-mm. A little bit more money, and you'll have just a little bit more money to fight about. That's all it's going to do. This is why a guy like Aaron Hernandez will do what he does with all of his money. And everybody asks the same question. How could he be so stupid? How could he be so stupid? He threw it all away. He had everything. Because who he was with nothing is who he is with a lot. I'm still Jenny from the block. <laughs> Same person, right? Here's what the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 5.10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. I love to put this into a family context. Uh, context. The family that loves money will never be satisfied with money. Nor will the family who loves wealth ever be satisfied with their income. This is vanity. The funny thing about money is that, the, is that money will always leave you a jilted lover. Always. It doesn't matter how much you serve it, how much you go after it, how much you chase it, how much you try to gain it. Here's the thing. Money will always leave you. Somebody said, money talks. And the other person said, no, it doesn't. It just gets up and walks away. And that's the truth, man. It just keeps going and going and going. It's like the Energizer Bunny. It just goes. It just goes. And here's the real problem when it comes to money. Money promises what it will never deliver. It promises peace. 
It never gives that to you. We could have people stand up here today, I guarantee you. We could have people stand up here today, you make all kinds of money, and you're still the same person with the same issues. You, you have more money to worry about losing now. And you kind of you idolize the people who are just starting out because you're like, oh, I wish I could go back to when I didn't have anything to lose. And that's what the problem is with money. And this is where the struggle comes from because we're chasing our passions. Everybody has a different idea what to do with the family money. And we're going after all these things. And we're just blaming each other, hurting each other, chasing after each other, and condemning each other, and coveting other people's families. And any other family can look happy on the outside, but they're probably doing the same thing about your family. So we got to get this solved, friends. Money promises peace and never delivers it. Here's the thing. God promises peace and always delivers it. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus said it like this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Don't seek money. Don't seek things. Don't seek pleasures. Don't seek passions. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And look at this. Here's the promise. All these things you don't have to chase after. All these things will be added to you. And then he says, therefore, don't be anxious. Don't stress out. If you're seeking God first, if you're putting God first, if you get this, adultery, this spiritual adultery deal fixed, and you make God your highest priority, then this is what's going to happen. You won't have to worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Sufficient is the day for its own trouble. Seek God first. And let's just be real honest, American Christians, you don't put God first by showing up to this building on the weekend. Anybody can do that. <laughs> if I wasn't a Christian, I'd be tempted to come to this building on the weekend. Free child care? And I get to see a cool band and inhale some smoke and stuff and watch the lights. I'm down for that. This is coming to church. It's not really a big deal. Let's be honest. I want you to do it. I want you to do it. But it's really not saying I put God first. This. This is where the rubber hits the road, friends. God says this. God says, you put me first financially, I'm going to bless your house. I read, I read an online article uh, this day, uh, actually a book, actually, last week. 30% of professing Christians give nothing to the kingdom of God. 30%. That's one out of three of us. Come and get everything else everybody else gets and says, eh. And we don't give. We don't put God first. It needs to change. we got to look at God and say, God, you have blessed my house. You have blessed my life. And some of you need to look at it this way. God, I am struggling and I am drowning and my family is in serious trouble. I'm going to start putting you first. I'm going to start putting you first and I'm going to believe you for a blessing in my life. Here's what it says in Malachi. It says it this way. It says, God says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. In other words, bring the full tenth into the house of God. And watch this. God says, put me, that there may be, be, may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test. I love how God says that. I want you to test me. I want you to try it. 
And I want you to see what's going to happen. Because he says, I will open the windows of heaven for you. And I will pour out a blessing on your home until there is no more need. And verse 11, I love this part too. I will rebuke the devourer. We got some devourers in our land. Debt, interest rates, uh, stuff that just falls to pieces. God says, I'll take care of that problem. I'll take care of it. But you got to trust me. And you bring the full tithe, and then it says this, and there will be no more need. I'll rebuke the devourer, and it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vines in the field shall not fill the bear. And then verse 12, then all nations will call you blessed, and you will be a land of delight. But God, first financially, watch what happens to your house. It's, it's, it's real, it's serious, and I'm telling you, there's no better way to break that conflict and those passions and those pleasures in your heart that are just warring at each other there's no better way than to stop giving in to the to the to the methodology of this world and start trusting your father which is in heaven saying god you can have my first so james continues and he says it like this verse six but he gives more grace but he gives more grace. You're adulterous, you're murderous, you're coveting, you're desiring, you're doing all this stuff. But listen, good news. God gives more grace. And what do we do with the grace? He says this. God opposes the problem, but gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble, the people who say, God, I can't keep doing this on my terms. I'm going to humble myself and start saying yes to your terms. Take you at your word, put you to the test, make you first in my family. And I, and I believe, I believe it's not going to solve every problem, but it's going to start you on the right path. And God will make your house, your house, and your home a land of delight. This is a great idea. Thanks, Dad. Do you think 35000 will be enough to get you started? Dad, I, I don't want a loan. It's not a loan, son. It's a gift. I believe in you, son. I love you. I love you, too. I'll pay you back. I promise. I just need like 3,500 bucks to get me through the next couple months. You know I'm good for it. <laughs>